I'm just taking pictures of things I find beautiful. That video tears me up. In case you came in late or if you're listening to this sermon later on on the podcast, which people do, by the way, we have a podcast, you could do if you wanted. We started our service today with this YouTube video called People React to Being Called Beautiful. It was a school project for a kid in Chicago, and I can't watch it without crying. Those high school students, so tender and also already so guarded, so beautiful. As I thought about that video this week, I struggled to say what happens in it, what changes in the students when they're told they're beautiful. Or, or does something change? Does Shay telling them they're beautiful make them beautiful? Do the words somehow make it true? I don't think so, but, but somehow saying it, even insisting on it makes it more true or more real or, or saying it proves it to be true, helps us see the evidence. The more she says it, the truer it becomes which when I wrote that in my notes this week, I realized was an uncomfortable thing to preach in 2020. We're a little too aware of that phenomenon now, how saying something over and over can start to make it feel real. That's just what I've come to fear since October, since March, since 2016, that insisting upon something can make it come true, that if you repeat a falsehood enough, it will gain traction. It's dangerous. People spouting conspiracy theories and then starting to put together evidence to support them, saying a thing and then finding the signs of it everywhere they look. The psychological term for it is confirmation bias. Once you've decided that life is a certain way, you start to notice reality living into that view. You find proof of it everywhere you turn and you start ignoring anything that points in the opposite direction. Or not necessarily even ignoring, just not seeing. And the less you see of it, the more certain you become. You tell a story and telling it makes it come true for you at least. The theological term for it, of course, is faith. The assurance of things hoped for. Belief in things unseen. Isaiah is standing in the middle of a desert, insisting on water. Streams and springs and swamps. He's standing in a wasteland and pointing to flowers and trees, crocuses and cattails, cedars as, as big as the ones that Lebanon is famous for. Right here in this cracked, parched earth. Plus a highway, a pathway leading back home for the Judean people who are living in exile in Babylon a road so direct, a trail so well marked that even a fool can't lose their way. People often think of prophecy as predicting the future. They imagine prophets like, like fortune tellers divining something that's gonna happen years later. 
but the biblical prophets are more like forecasters or pollsters. They don't pull the future out of thin air. They, they read the writing on the wall. They piece together disparate bits of information, running a red thread from this mugshot over to that headline. They notice the pattern of pushpins in the map, all coming together to tell a particular story. Things are getting better, maybe, or things are getting worse. Isaiah is speaking to a people in exile, but by the time he writes this bit about a blossoming wilderness, the buds are already on the tree. Exile is already ending. Scholars date this passage to 539 BCE. The Babylonians will be conquered by the Persians in 538. The people are already packing to go home. But what will that mean for them? After our own year of forecasts and predictions about what will come back and when or what has been lost forever and what is going to replace it, it's not hard to imagine that there are other voices than Isaiah's interpreting this moment. Voices with a less optimistic take than his. Voices saying that things are only going to get worse after exile. The way that Every piece of good news about a vaccine is followed immediately by a news story, some of which are literally titled, Why You Shouldn't Get Too Excited About This Good News. There are other voices in Isaiah's time predicting doom. And, and the more they say it, the truer it seems. The more they hear it, the, the more the people find evidence for it everywhere they look. Sure, they're going to go home, but, but to what? To a land that they haven't lived in for 60 years, a land that others have occupied in the meantime, to houses and fields that have been lost, to families that have been split up, to a country that has been remade, to a temple that has been destroyed. And weren't they finally just getting settled in in Babylon? There are people in their 50s who have never known anywhere else. What kind of life will that be in Judah? The whole thing is bound for disaster. But Isaiah assures the people otherwise. He stands in the desert and claims it's a forest in waiting. He stands in the wasteland talking about things he finds beautiful over and over again. And the more he says it, the more evidence the people seem to find for it. Homes and temples can be rebuilt, families reunited, a nation reconstructed from those who stayed and those who were forced to leave. It can be done. The more he says it, the truer it becomes. But before I scare you with the idea that our faith is basically a conspiracy theory, or now that I have already scared you with that idea, let me say I don't think that faith asks us to believe things that aren't true. I don't think it asks us or even wants us to ignore science or to deny facts, to turn off our brains. That's not faith, that's ignorance. Nor do I think that faith always means optimism. Before Isaiah forecast that Judah's coming home, he prophesies that they're going into exile. 
Sometimes faith is insisting over and over again that things are bad when the predominant narrative is that they couldn't be better. Sometimes faith is pointing to to systems and structures and saying, this is ugly, while the world is intent on ignoring the evidence. God doesn't ask us to ignore what is, but I think God does ask us to try to make sense of it, red thread and pushpins and all, to see where it's all going, to read the writing on the wall. And faith doesn't ask us for blind trust, but it does ask for trust, a lot of trust. That the world is God's. That God cares for it. God loves it and everything in it, including us, including them. Faith asks us to believe that God intends something good out of all of this, that God is actually working right now for something good out of all of this. To believe it, even and especially when it is hard to see. Faith asks us, I think, to call out life's beauty, even and especially when other voices are loudly proclaiming the opposite. In the background of that video, there are other voices. No one we can hear exactly. I don't mean the person singing behind the guy who does the hair flip. One of the best parts for sure. But there are other voices. You you know they're there. If you've been to high school, if you grew up in this culture, if you inhabit human skin, you know. And you can see them, at least I feel like I see them, flickering across the faces of those students in the moments they hear themselves called beautiful. It's the thing that makes me cry when I watch it. That look of doubt, that look of suspicion, that look of surprise at being called beautiful. as they replay all of the other voices that have told them just the opposite. The voice of the bully who has tried unsuccessfully to pass on their own pain. The voice of the parent who criticizes out of their own insecurity. The voice of consumerism that has insisted there is a problem only it can fix a student's own voice which has internalized all those other voices which plays them on repeat until they gain traction, until they seem like the truth, until they can't see any of the evidence that runs against it. That's what happens. The world begins to believe the ugly stories it tells about itself. And the more it believes, the truer the stories become, that life is competition and scarcity and violence, that people are selfish and stupid and evil, that things are only getting worse, much worse. As soon as I say it, the evidence starts to come to mind. 
which is why at church we make ourselves tell other stories, make other predictions, at least once a year at this time, this season of Advent. We make ourselves dig out these dusty words of prophecy, 2,500 years old, and repeat them to ourselves again. Speak them and sing them to each other and to the world over and over in this season about springs in the desert, about lions and lambs laying down together, about mountains made low and valleys raised up, about a God who loved a world so well, who believed in its beauty so fiercely that that God came into the world and took on human skin, tender and unguarded, we tell it again and again to the world. We say to each other, to ourselves, to our neighbors, we assure them, you are good. You are just. You are beautiful. Even though others have told you just the opposite. Even though it may all look like a wasteland right now. Even though it makes us seem like conspiracy theorists to keep repeating it, we will say it again. This world is beautiful. We must insist on it until it catches on, until it gains traction. The world is beautiful. We have to keep telling ourselves until we can see that it's true.